0: Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network.
1: Frederick the Great. Talents, Ruses, and Stratagems. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Jag And I'm Thumbs. And we are coming to do you today to talk about talents, ruses, and stratagems. But before we do that, I am just still so stoked about being here in the warshed. Because it's very clean. I love that you call it, it sound, always sounds like you're saying the warshed. That, that's the pun I warned you about before, uh, before we came in. Warshed. <laughs> <laughs> I told that to my wife earlier when I was like, you know, you know I call it the warshed. Do you know why I call it the warshed? And she's like, because you make war in a shed? And I was like, no, because it's very clean. And I just looked at her and she was like, I don't get it. And I, and I just made like the, God, the washing, the washing motion with my hand. And she was like, no, just no. The worst. And so at that point I had to, I, I resolved that I had to tell you that joke. <laughs> but anyway, so we're, we're here and, and I'm very pleased. It keeps coming together. I know I'm promising you guys pictures of this. And honestly, this next week, the last of the decorations will be arriving. So I will be releasing our, um, uh actually at this point when you hear this we'll probably already have it out so go to our instagram and check it out but i have like a a a catalog or a detailed uh, photographic document Uh, what are those things called you know portfolio portfolio sure (laughs) um or how it's made or how it's made basically of how we transform this common garden shed into a podcasting studio slash war gaming studio slash office slash I listen to music out here and just unwind place. So yeah, I'm, I'm very happy about it. I'm going to be rambling about it, of course, for the rest of forever, probably. So, uh, yeah, it's wonderful, but I had my first game here. That's why I'm bringing it up today. I'll find a new reason to bring it up next week. But today, um, we had our first game and it was my apprentice turkey feathers who came over and we were playing some kill team because we broke it in. Yeah, we broke it in. And, um, I have a board, a big Warhammer 40k board that's coming that we're going to be able to play games on. And eventually I'll have terrain painted up and we're hoping to do some YouTube videos for battle reports. It'll be a lot of fun. Um, but it was just awesome to be able to game finally in this space. And so he brought up his blood angels cause that's what he plays. And I was playing my death guard. I rolled, I had three armies that were prepared, my orcs, my demons and my death guard. I got my death guard and it's a, it's a, it's a 200 point list, but there's only five models. And they're all terminators. And if you know anything about Death Guard terminators, you know they are thick boys. And and uh, these guys, I had the flail. Of course, you got to have the flail. And um, it was good. He won. Uh, it was it was actually a really good game. Uh, the the dice favored him toward the end, and he actually had some good tactics as well. I want I want to talk about what he did because the tactics he used were really good. Half of his team were like wielding jump back. They had jump packs, right? Mm-hmm. And then they had hammers, and some of them had a pistol, and some of them had a shield. But it was obvious that their whole point was to get up close and say hi to you, right? And then you had five dudes in the back line who were all armed with long-range weapons. And so what he had was a group that came forward and engaged my slow death guard and kept them from getting across the field. And then you had dudes in his back line who were just laying down cover fire. It was Space Marine Tactics 101, and it worked brilliantly that's classic right there yeah yeah it was perfect i hope to see him uh not just use that tactic in the future but also improve on it because it was it was really good and i wanted to to talk about that because i was really stoked about seeing that uh that uh, that uh effectiveness is blood angels his only army at this point i think so he he was he has some knights so he does have some imperial knights and then he also occasionally plays salamanders uh, with his intercessors or with his uh, Primaris Marines. But primarily he does Blood Angels. Yeah. Okay,
0: I was going to say, I think Turkelton might be the only person I know that only has one Warhammer army that plays 40k. Yeah, like... the,
1: the rest of us are pretty diversified. Like I've got, what, seven that I play? Um, eight, if I'm being generous. Anytime I know someone that's like, I'm going to get
0: into it, I'll just get one army. I'm like, no, no you're lying to yourself, friend.
1: It's like getting into Belagarth and saying you're just going to have the one sword. It's not happening. That's just like you're lying to yourself, friend. I, I told myself I was going to get on Ultra Sabers and buy one lightsaber. Um, we just drove up Ultra Saber stock.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've made like five swords since the quarantine has started. Oh, sure. I've made two armor sets in the last year. I already had one that was perfectly functional.
1: Yeah, if you're new to hobbying, again, any of you who are old hobbyists, this is this is old news to you, but new hobbyists, be prepared to become creative with your storage space options because you will need it you will need it Uh, my wife and i for instance we're both huge nerds and therefore we have a lot of crap for instance my library alone occupies all of our walls basically Mm,
0: yeah no you've seen mine
1: (laughs) it's uh (laughs) same thing Um, when
0: when people are like oh i'm like i've got five bookshelves of comics they think i mean Little like ones. a shelf right no i mean like a bookshelf like the whole bookshelf what goes to the ceiling That's about my height mm-hmm. yeah so i'm about six feet tall and i have like five or six of those mm-hmm. full of comic books sure i got i have four spears i just got rid of two of them i'm already working on making new pole arms
1: my living room hallway and bedroom are also just full of of uh books. I have an entire corner of my bedroom that is dedicated to my incredibly reduced armory. Since this nerve crap started, for instance, I had to get rid of my spears because I can't spear with a dam anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Even with that, I still occupy a full corner of my room with all that. And then, of course, my Warhammer stuff is scattered all over the universe because I've got seven armies. But yeah, so we had the first game in the Warshed, and I was was just really excited about it. But yeah, um, Blood Angels. I'm hoping to be able to talk about more of those. I'm trying to rope thumbs into having one of these kill team games as well at some point. So <laughs> I've agreed we'll have to play. But as we've discussed, I have several expensive hobbies. So I'm a little hesitant. I'm not, I'm not saying you have to buy anything. I, as we've discussed, I have seven armies.
0: My friend, has that ever really stuck on I mean, Warhammer
1: players? <laughs> this is also the same tactic that crack um, dealers use to get good customers. The first so. free. It's free man it's fine it's fine you're not gonna want any more. we're friends <laughs> everybody becomes a plastic pusher at some point that's <laughs> what i do with bellegarde oh for sure you have to you have to because the, the best part about these games is doing them with other people oh and i'm the worst i directly make stuff for people
0: and they're like it's so nice i'm like you're literally just giving me excuses to hit you if you're better equipped i can hit you
1: more it's it's the best way to do things it's how you make friends and practice your skills um, oh so-
0: man, when I was uh, I was giving away spears, the, the spears I was given, I gave one to the realm and one to the guy that's holding onto it for the realm because I didn't need them anymore. I already have four nicer ones. Sure. Uh, and as he was leaving, and I haven't seen uh, Orn in I don't know, since March? February? And as he's leaving, he shouts over my shoulder, I can't wait to hit you and your family again. And I'm like, God, my neighbors
1: do not know what this <laughs> is. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah yeah to people who don't necessarily know what we're talking about we seem very very violent and, i mean <laughs> we are but in a in a controlled consensual sort of way you know and, and that's i mean that's with any war gaming whether you do Bellagarth, dagger here sca um amp guard any of that stuff you there, there's a certain degree of it's okay to hit your friends in a way in a certain mm-hmm.
0: way if you're just hauling off on them that's less good
1: that's not cool yeah um And speaking of of doing things with friends, of course, we're in quarantine. So Mm -hmm. uh, the people that I'm inviting up, Thumbs and and Turkey Feathers, we're all doing really well at keeping to ourselves, keeping the quarantine. We're not meeting in large groups and all that sort of thing. But there's still a huge amount of social interaction that's missing. Of course, we're not hanging out all the time and we're keeping our distance when we do. And so uh, Turkey actually started up an ARC server that we've been on and... uh, I it, honestly, it is more team oriented than I would have expected when I first got onto it. I was like, it is a survivor game with dinosaurs. I am sold. Mm-hmm. The little kid in me <laughs> that went nuts for the Dionycus is, is just losing his mind right now because I'm on an Island full of dinosaurs that I get to play with or rather they get to eat me, but th- that's something else entirely. And so that was kind of my idea of it. And then I start playing with Turkey and I'm like, Whoa, there are so many different levels of teamwork that you can do on something like this, when you're either building your base or going out and trapping dinosaurs or going on hunts, like having somebody there to back your play is so important. And it kind of like, I, originally I wasn't gonna talk about the ARK server on here because I was like, it doesn't really have to do with war gaming. but because it does focus so much on teamwork, if you and your unit or realm or or your team or, or whoever you are, your group that normally meets and is not able to meet right now because of quarantine issues, I would recommend maybe get an ARK yeah because it's it's a really nice way to hang out and have a little tribe and and still work on teamwork and communication all that good stuff and then also get to you know play with dinosaurs oh yeah
0: uh really any kind of video game that's multiplayer even if you're versus each other can be very good for this because it's just a bonding experience uh squire you and i since we live in the same house play mario kart together all nice. of the time because i mean i have a nintendo switch there's there's certain games i don't I can't play Arc, on right it, but right. uh we have Mario Kart and we have very passionate battles with each other over it but it's it's a very much bonding thing right right uh we have also learned to very carefully when we are talking smack to insult the character and not the driver
1: yeah that that is a good distinction for sure
0: I will say. Extremely mean things about Luigi,
1: <laughs> but not Yui. Sure, of course, of course. That's a little bit that uh, it's not personal. You know, it's just friendly competition. A little bit of bravado goes a long way for friendly. As long as everybody knows that,
0: you know, a little know? bit of adrenaline coming out, and yeah, no, it's great. Uh, and then there will always be, in our case, it's Toadette. But every Mario Kart user has that one CPU character that causes problems for whatever reason and there have been times where we have definitely teamed up of like we're trying to get one of us needs to get this gold medal but Todettes in second so whoever's not in second whoever's in like third and fourth their entire job that race
1: toadette yeah or oreo or whoever peach peaches or peach. It, it seems like peach has it out for me every time i play it's the like peach is the one that lobs the blue shell at me baby daisy yeah <laughs> now i play waluigi so i'm used to being hated by everyone oh no i'm i'm on team waluigi with you here right so, on. yeah right on um but you also did something else like it's not just playing these games but you also did um uh, like a building session while yep. maintaining social distance we
0: did social distance glaive building party uh and we admittedly did this in my backyard this is the first time i have seen people other than you in or I mean my coworkers in your months, yeah, uh, and I should say while this is happening, there is only been about five hundred cases in our entire state, right this is so like if if we were in a place that was having a much bigger problem, this would not have gone down, sure, but we still we we hung out in the backyard, we all wore masks as much as possible, we stayed six feet away from each other, like using. The, the stricter safety requirements than the state is actually asking of us right now right right we all got together and we built glaives nice little glaives and we'll see how they go we were using a, a practice or a, a new kind of core that i'd never used before and it's a little flexy for my tastes but
1: so those of you who don't know what a glaive is i want you to picture a sword on a steak.
0: yes it is uh, a Naginata if you're into Japanese stuff. It's a pike is another pretty good. It is a polearm that you can slash and stab with.
1: It is sexy is what you uh, saying.
0: real nice. And I'm not very good with it because I've never owned a nice, like I've owned a big heavy glaive, which has its points, but I've never owned like a technique glaive before. Mm. And that's kind of what I'm aiming for. And if this one that I'm making works out, it's a little shorter. I want it's about six feet. Mm-hmm. but like four of us are getting it. So we're just going to pop up on the realm we're like, aha. Nice. And they're all light enough that you can just use it one handed if you need like no kind of technique fight with that. But like, if you lose your arm.
1: I, I love the first like three or four practices that occur after a big equipment switch up. Mm-hmm. Cause like everywhere you go, any realm you go to there, people are going to fall into a habit, into a routine, certain weapon styles are going to become more popular and you're going to get certain focuses in your realm so when something like what what uh, thumbs is suggesting here when uh, he's he's got all these glaives that we're going to be introducing to the realm all of a sudden uh it's going to be interesting to see whether people go stronger towards shields or whether there's a polearm response more archers like the meta always changes uh well
0: and what's fun with these is uh it, it only ever takes like one person to really change up and other people are like that looks fun or i don't know how to fight that so i'm gonna do it you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. uh one person turkey actually started using a minred yeah so i built a minred so my squire built a minred so like four other people and next thing i knew we had a practice where there was like eight minreds on the field of like 15 to 20 people delicious (laughs) the archer had a great day
1: yeah no they would no, oh, they would. And, uh, and so like we're saying here, like this is what we're talking about where, where one person or a group of people changes one thing, it'll change the whole meta. And of course this goes outwards, goes to the event and goes to like the national level. Cause people then go to events and they see the meta change. They bring it back to their realm. It's, there's the constant beautiful swirling of information and ideas. And that's kind of what we're talking about on this show, isn't mm-hmm. it? Like this, uh, and speaking of delicious. This chapter, <laughs> what a segue! Is delicious. Thank you. I, 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 I uh, was working on that, <laughs> but the, this chapter is absolutely delicious. Again, most all of what Frederick writes is really good. This book is widely regarded as one of the most brilliant works on military strategy that has ever existed. And like Mallark those... will tell you about this. Yes, I'm a fanboy, um, but most of the chapters are about fifty percent solid gold. And then fifty percent very specific things that you're not going to be doing probably hopefully, like invading Morovia or if, Bohemia. If,
0: if you need to go back in time three hundred years, some section be great. Yeah, and uh, invade Bohemia, which I did actually know was a real country for a long time.
1: You just thought it was a term. No, or
0: yeah, like because you know Bohemians, like it's very a, different like, than actual Bohemia. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the things you learned um i wanna i i you know it's it's escaping my mind right now, but I feel like there's some research to be done there as to why the term bohemian exists and seems to contradict so heavily the actual country slash city state of bohemia that existed in history i think i'm you know what that's my homework in addition to all my other homework i'm gonna i'm gonna bring that back uh next uh next time we're going cool. to talk about Bohemia and why why that term exists um but yeah so this chapter like i said most chapters are kind of 50 50 50 really useful stuff and then 50 percent stuff that is mm, situationally useful yeah this chapter is solid gold. Like the it's whole just thing. useful stuff. Like there's one, there's one paragraph where he references something very specific, but it's, it's in order to illustrate a point. Like this chapter is just one of the most broadly applicable. And it's because it deals with things that are, are, are uh, that you deal with in your everyday life. And then especially that you're going to deal with in any sort of physical or intellectual wargaming. Um, cause this one, this chapter deals with the talents of a general and ruses and stratagems. And so these are like, we're talking about leadership. We're talking about demeanor. We're talking about personal qualities and we're going to get into it just after this musical interlude with the talents of a general.
0: So I have to admit that I was not surprised at all when you're like, this is my favorite chapter. And it's basically about the chapter of subterfuge and conniving.
1: Well, and, and uh, <laughs> it's also about like the way you present yourself in mind games and not less. We're not talking like bad mind games, but if you've ever sit at a poker table and done so successfully, you've done so because of mind games. Mm-hmm. And you love mind games and deception
0: and subterfuge and conniving. At least studying. You is. actively enjoy conniving. I uh, studying, and, and, and it's perfect because this is you know dissembling while being occupied is literally our first thing, chapter,
1: subject. Uh, uh, yeah, first uh, <laughs> first bullet point, Thank if you, you will. And so for to, to define this, dissembling while appearing occupied is the first thing that Frederick advises under these talents of a general. So these, these, throughout this chapter, he's kind of listing personality traits that you can cultivate to be a more effective battlefield commander. And this also works if you're doing any sort of intellectual wargaming too, because these kind of mind games, like I was talking about in poker, are important for interacting with your opponent in an advantageous way to you. So dissembling while appearing occupied, this word dissemble means to obfuscate your true intentions. So I use another big word.
0: Yeah, course. I was going to say, you made that sound
1: so much clearer. <laughs> uh, let me try again. To dissemble means to hide your true intentions. <laughs> but much better. Much better. Um, while appearing to be occupied. So, so the idea here is, it, it, and, and it's not necessarily, you're not trying to lie, but this is a matter of inspiring confidence in your troops because let's say that the battle is not going your way. Let's Mm -hmm. say that things are kind of on the back foot. You don't want your troops to think that. You don't want your troops to lose heart. You definitely don't want them to lose confidence in your ability to lead them. And so dissembling while appearing occupied is, is disguising the fact that you really feel rather anxious, but you're not letting it on to them. And this is, this is also against your opponent. So if like, I'm in in a Warhammer 40k match and my opponent does something, makes a move that like really upsets my plan, the worst thing I can do is have any sort of facial expression or verbal expression or body language expression see where i'm going with this
0: comes up exactly with the general we're talking about in the book we're talking about and i have already forgotten the name of the battle because i don't do names but the the battle from early on in his career where he basically had it won but he's like oh no oh i'm gonna lose this and left the battlefield right Right. And they lost because it turns out a really good way to lose is for you to leave because if, if a route starts, if people start running, an organized retreat, you can still kind of pull off a win. If they start running, it's over. So if you give them reasons to think they need
1: to run, it's done. And especially the leadership. Again, we're talking especially to like the generals, the captains, the lieutenants. We're talking to the event coordinators and to the unit leaders, uh, the team leaders out there who might be listening to this show. It is important to not let your troops know that you are stressed out. Now, this is not to say that you always have to keep it bottled up inside. You need to have a confidant. Now, whether that is one of your trusted lieutenants or a spouse or... Or a girlfriend, or a boyfriend, or a good friend, or whatever the case may be. You need to have somebody in order to let that stress out. But it needs to not be to the troops because they need to have that confidence in you. My mind is drawn to my very first battle for the ring down in Southern California, and down there I witnessed Sir Anna, who was a powerhouse.
0: Oh, she's amazing. Of, a, no, of an event coordinator,
1: her. like I, I got there and it, like, to, to my impression from my perspective, she was just standing. In, in the middle of this event and everywhere she looked she would just point and there would be order she'd be like you be doing this you be doing this she was just delegating flawlessly and just everything looked to me to be moving smoothly the event to me to every everything else felt or felt <laughs> it field it field real good um it felt like a very smooth well-polished machine and at the end of the event i told her as much i walked up her and said i said anna this is one of the best events I've ever been to. I can't believe how smooth everything ran. I'm I'm just so impressed with the way you did it. And she looks at me and she says, thanks, I feel like I was flying by the seat of my pants the entire time.
0: Uh, one of the advantages that, just beyond Anna, Anna, Anna has been very good at gathering up a group of dedicated people. Oh, she has some great lieutenants. Yeah. And they've been doing it for years mm-hmm. now. So they know their stuff. Uh, and so they can come with, To her with that specific thing, and she can make the choices that need to be made. But it also gives her a dedicated group of people when she's just like (sighs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that she can go talk to one of those people. You have to remember, all the advice in this is about a military. These people are there, they cannot leave. They will get killed if they leave. Desertion bad. I know I say this in like every episode. We are war gaming. Mm -hmm. You can't do ever all event coordinators, and I kept thinking of event coordinators in this chapter, more than any like, all leadership stuff is good, but right. dang, event coordinators on this one. If your volunteers get too overloaded and don't have fun, or if you overload yourself, which I have done. Burnout is what that's called. Yes, stop playing. And then someone else has to relearn everything from scratch. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, it is very important to appear that you are confident and sure what you are doing just pull it back to
1: what we're actually talking about. But you, you have to have those other people now in that same, in that same vein. Now we're not also not saying that if, if you, that there have been times in history where a leader has lost their nerve. And I don't mean this as a, as a slight against them. I'm not, I'm not calling anybody out. I'm not trying to throw shade, but leaders lose their nerve, you know? And at that point they become ineffective leaders. When you run from Alexander the great twice, it turns out it's really hard to keep
0: leading the Achaemenid Persian Empire. It's such a general Ah, uh, uh, Yeah, there's, <laughs> I couldn't uh, specifically example. be talking
1: about who was that Cyrus the II? I don't know. One, one of them, one yeah. of them Persians. We didn't study that for this week. Um, but no, and, and so this is an important thing and it's important on all levels of wargaming. T- of course, we talked about the big things like, like 40k or, 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 or anything like that. The tabletop wargaming, you got to make sure you got your poker face on is what he's saying here. Make sure you have a poker face, make sure your opponent doesn't know when you've done something that's really good either. Remember I said earlier that if my opponent does something and I react poorly, he knows that he needs to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, the other part of that is if I do something and it goes really well for me and I show that, then my opponent knows what my plan is because th- th- i'm reacting positively so you got to keep it on the dl for the good and the bad
0: yeah and it's the bad is one i definitely have to work on on most kind of gaming when it starts to go too bad i have to like struggle to make sure i'm not oh, pouting and i keep is. trying to make this face at you <laughs> in <laughs> and they can't see in they can't see it
1: but but like what he's talking about pouting you're, you, what you're seeing is the shoulders drop the face drops the eyes become featureless the mouth uh, the,
0: the brow, furrows. brow the, furrows the lip kind of sticks on a little bit I if know. i
1: see that face at a tournament i'm going for your throat i've got it <laughs> <laughs> that's what i want to see <laughs> You will be mine yeah no that, that that's that's the one and that doesn't and, and this is everywhere we're talking again tabletop wargaming we're talking in like large team fights as well and we're also talking about against another opponent one-on-one i want to make sure that if my opponent does something that throws me off balance he's the last person to know about that Mm -hmm. if i if i do if my opponent drops their guard a little and i suddenly see an opening i don't want to show that i'm happy about that because if i suddenly am just like grinning ear to ear they're like wait What I do, (laughs) where am I open? Like, that's what that says. Whereas you just remain remain impassive, remain impassive to what's going on around you. And in the same idea, another piece of advice that Frederick has is to be ceaselessly suspicious while affecting tranquility. And it's the same idea of like on the outside, you look peaceful Mm -hmm. on the outside. Nothing can bother you. That thing that your opponent just did, pff, of course, it was just according to plan. No big deal. Whereas on the inside, you are examining absolutely every angle. You are looking at every approach and being like, is that dangerous? You are looking at every feint and being like, is that, or every retreat and being like, is that a feint? You know, you want to be suspicious of everything you see. Everybody you come across could be a double agent. Uh, and this is talking like in the larger army and something like Bellegarth, where we all go off and kind of party afterwards. And it's a larger community. Less so. But on the battlefield, you have to be ceaselessly suspicious because you want to understand that every single one of your opponents is trying to deceive you. Every single one of them wants to keep you on the back foot and wants to catch you off guard. And so understanding that, you got to make sure that you're suspicious. But in the same mind, you don't want to let people know that you're suspicious, right? Because it's Horribly
0: you... complicated.
1: It is. Well, we were talking about it earlier, and it's the idea of if you're standing there, uh, let's say on a, on a Bellagarth or an SCA field, large group combat. And you're looking around from side to side inside your helm. You want to keep your head relatively still. You don't want to be like head on a swivel. Make it look like you're super aware of everything. Mm -hmm. But you want to be like, okay, out of the corner of my eye. Oh, I see four people over there who are a little close. I, I better be aware of that. Hmm. Across the field, I've noticed that these two groups go at each other pretty early on. I'm going to be aware of that and see where we might be able to go in. On the outside, you look bored. Yeah. On the outside, you look like you're just standing around waiting for stuff to start. But on the inside, you are looking at every single angle of attack.
0: And while I'm standing there with my shield a little down, I think of it as the valis stance, to be honest with you. The board stance. stance, Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I have that like, oh, if they take two steps closer, if they take three steps closer, I am going to burst into action. That's when stuff is going on. But if I burst into action too soon, they know I'm ready. Mm -hmm. Same time. Uh, you can't let suspicion turn into hesitation.
1: Right. Right. There is, there is this, uh, going too far, which is when you, uh, uh, you stop motion. Remember that basically every single military tactician that we have studied so far says the worst thing you can do is nothing. Mm-hmm. The worst thing you can do is, is make no decision whatsoever. You gotta do something. And people think they people think they
0: get that. They're like, Oh, obviously. And then you're leading a group for the first time on the field and there's uh, people just three steps away from the danger zone right there. Mm-hmm. And there's that big group over there, and you could probably take them, but man, you're gonna it's gonna cost you to do that. Mm-hmm. And then man, those people just noticed you over there, and I'm pointing all over the warshed, and it's not sorry guys, it's very late.
1: Eventually we're um, gonna have video <laughs> of this, but not right now.
0: Uh and it's, it's real easy for your brain. Just there's too much information being taken in and it just kind of stutter stops.
1: And remember last chapter, we talked about the concept of the intuitive, uh, uh, lane of the battlefield where you can just kind of look at the battlefield and understand where your forces fit into it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what you're trying to get to. Obviously nobody starts out there. You have to have experience. And so one of the things you have to understand is especially early on. You have to make mistakes. Not Mm. that you're going to make mistakes. You have to make mistakes because that's how you learn. Look at Frederick's own military career. He made mistakes. He made a lot of mistakes and every single one of them he learned from and he built on and he he improved his army, improved his command style. All the greats make mistakes.
0: Uh, It's if you don't make mistakes, you don't learn how to fix them. Right. It is very similar to I was real smart. Early on in life, I I was way ahead of the rest of the kids, and when I was in like you know grade and middle school, and I never learned how to study because of it. You didn't need to, and then once it became time to study, I had no idea how. Like once it you know I needed to, I did not know
1: how, and that's still something that I struggle with, at thirty one. What's interesting is I had the exact opposite thing go on. Like mm-hmm. I came into school, and because of uh, whether or not you believe it from Thumbs's descriptions of me, I don't always get along with people. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I was early on, I, I really hadn't learned to control my temper. And so my early experiences in school were, like, I, grade-wise, I didn't do well. I, I feel like I was a fairly intelligent person, but I just did not respect the authority of the school mm. system and did not want to engage with it. And so early on my career suffered like my academic career because of that, that kind of view later on, like in middle school and especially early on in high school, I had some, some teachers that really showed me the light. Like I, like, obviously I'm sitting here and I'm doing a podcast that is based on doing a lot of research and doing a lot of note-taking. Um, obviously somewhere along the line, it changed. And I, and I have several teachers in high school and and middle school to thank for that because they showed me the benefit to knowledge. They showed me the benefit to study and study in a specific way, a scholarly form of study. And this really came together when I got into college and I got to study the things I wanted to study. I got to focus on military history and religious history. And I got to, to look at those things and really embrace the things I was passionate about and then learn the scholarly approach. And so like now my young self would not recognize me. Mm-hmm. Sitting here, surrounded by all these books, like taking notes constantly, and like being diligent in note taking, and basically doing homework for a living, he would not recognize me. But uh, yeah, no, it's interesting how things shape us as we're go- as we're going up. We've gotten massively off topic. Oh, um, never, never, we're not gonna, on a podcast. We don't do that on the show. So, going back to our point here. Being ceaselessly suspicious while affecting tranquility, it's the same idea as the poker face. You want to be examining the odds, but you don't want your opponent to know how mentally involved you are. You want them to think you're bored. You want them to think that you're just sitting there not paying attention because that plays to your benefit, especially if you anticipate it. So the next point that, that Frederick makes is the idea of working the mind and the body. So you, it, some people have talked to me and they're like, why do you do a podcast? on something like a physical war gaming like bellegarth sca why do you do a podcast on that and warhammer 40k like specifically but also tabletop jam- gaming in general like mm-hmm. why would you why would you think that like that this seems kind of convoluted aren't you mixing your subjects and frederick would agree with me when i say no
0: i was gonna say that just seems very natural to me when you're doing because there's tactics in both sides
1: and frederick says you got to work the mind and the body you gotta sit there and play your, your war games. You gotta think of your scenarios. You gotta put yourself in your hypotheticals in order to work the mind and really be involved. But also, to be a good warrior, you have to know how to make war. You have to know what the troops on the ground are experiencing. If you've never held a sword in your life, how can you expect to command people who do?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean it's a huge problem that any time an army has stopped worrying about
1: that when it comes to its uh people in charge it tends to backfire right and that's because the the two disciplines are related your physical game of war gaming will get better if you start doing like strategy games and stuff mm-hmm. and your strategy games will get better your, your intellectual war gaming skills will get better if you start fighting i guarantee it
0: oh yeah because your reflexes get better
1: and it becomes intuitive and 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 once that is all in there and it becomes a larger picture and it's all about perspective right? You see something different from being on the ground than you do from the bird's eyed view. You see something different when you're doing one-on-one than you do on large group combats. These are not separate worlds. These are not separate ideas. All of these ideas come together and help one another. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think that's why Frederick recommends working both the mind and the body because they benefit. And then also from his perspective, if you're working your body and you're the commander, let's say you're not directly involved in the fighting, Oh yeah, but uh, you still have to hoof it with the troops. You still have to climb them mountains and do those forced marches and, and appear rested and confident at the end of the day.
0: If you're too tired and out of breath to do anything and you know, they can see the like pit stains on sure. your
1: uniform and it's not going to work. I'm looking at my commander and I'm like, dude, you are way more winded than I am. Like I, I, like there was a sergeant when I was in the army, not to throw shade, but my sergeant, when I was in the command or the intelligence section of the reserve, uh, uh, uh unit here, <laughs> that sounded authoritative. Um, the place and the thing, he, he was one of those sergeants that was in the, like the last several years of his career. He mm-hmm. was just waiting until he gets to 20, doing the bare minimum on PT, doing the bare minimum, basically just to be able to get his retirement. And now at this point in my life, I can hardly blame him for it. Yeah. But the, your body's not working <clears throat> as well anymore. Right. But at the time, like I was this young guy who was really into PT and I see my commanding officer barely being able to keep up with me. Like, like not actually not being able to keep up with me on the, in the field, uh, becoming absolutely exhausted by things that were just normal to me and not being able to do his work. And so I, I didn't really respect him, uh, because he, he didn't, he wasn't physically capable of remaining alert and functional while he was doing stuff. And that was his own fault, you know? Um, and again, I, at this point in my life, I'm like, eh, the pension would be nice. So, um, (laughs) So the next point that Frederick brings up, and this again is important on all levels of war gaming and normal war. And we've talked about it in the last two books. So it makes sense that because it's a good concept, it comes up again, but the idea of economy of force. And Frederick says that you need to save the blood of your soldiers and not squander it. And this is if this is good for several reasons. The first one being your soldiers are going to like you better. Oh yeah. If they don't think that you're just going to throw their lives away. Like the whole point of war, obviously, is to fight. The whole point of war is to go in and potentially risk death, but but to do so needlessly, to do so recklessly, nobody wants to do that.
0: Now, hear me out here. It turns out that people
1: don't like dying.
0: Really, I know.
1: Wow. Especially, especially painfully. Yeah, I imagine, like oh, with yeah. you know pikes that or, we were mentioning before, or, or muskets, or <laughs> even fake dying, like when we're doing Belagarth. Like I, I, I'm sure most people would prefer to win than to lose. Yeah. And to be around for that victory, yeah. We had a new
0: person once that was like, you're not taking it easy on me, are you? And I'm like, of course I am. I've been playing this since you were six. Yeah. Like, If if we didn't go easy on you, and not like
1: Let throwing you win. away the fight,
0: yeah. but like, if I win 100% against you every time, you wouldn't win once. That right. wouldn't be fun for you. You wouldn't want to play no more. You You still have to earn your win against me. But I'm going to let you get that. I'm going to let you earn that win sometimes.
1: I think about it as leveling up when people Mm -hmm. beat me. Like when I first beat or am fighting somebody and they're relatively new, they're fighting level one Malark. You know, level one Malark still has good basics. He still has good stuff. But like his footwork isn't as uh, acrobatic.
0: I tend to be very, uh, my footwork is pretty flat on the
1: ground for level one. Mm -hmm. And my reactions is about eight times slower. And then if you start to beat me consistently... At level one, I'm going to crank it up to level two. Mm-hmm. Start to be, and then, and then I'm trying a little bit more now. Okay, we got some more movement. We got some more of the little, oh, we're throwing some feints in there. Oh, yeah, tricking it up. And then, you know, if it won, and then eventually all people who stick around get to level three, which is, this is how I fight. I'm trying to win. You are trying to win. We both have the basics down. We both know what we're doing. Let's do this. Yeah. And so, but, but early on, and especially if you're thinking about somebody like Frederick, right? Mm -hmm. He's got this tiny country. Again, when we're talking about per capita, he's got more soldiers than most other countries, but he's also got a small country that's surrounded by aggression. He can't just be throwing people's lives away yeah they don't come back quick enough we have like a what a 15 year gestation period before we're useful soldiers like (laughs) minimum
0: (laughs) minimum uh yeah per capita he's got like one troop for every 30 civilians while britain has one for every like 150 but britain also has like a hundred times the men that he has right it does not matter when the army is still three times bigger
1: so, And even if you've got the large army, you don't want to squander your soldiers because if size Because then you won't have power, the large army anymore. Right, right. <laughs> You're just giving away your advantage. Like, that's dumb. So so you want to save the blood for, again, these two reasons. One, it'll endear your soldiers to you, especially in something like Belegarth. Again, people like winning more than like losing. And so just like ordering blind charges for no reason. Like people are like, well, you know, there's 15 minutes left to this game and we have to sit it out because I guess we just charged prematurely. So, so it's a matter of, of also making sure people have fun, right? Oh, yeah. And then it's also a matter of conserving your energy, conserving that economy of force so that when the time comes for that big battle, when the time comes for that, that game-deciding little match on the board, because this happens in 40k too. Like if you're just sitting there throwing away your lives, even for your Tyranid and Orc players, just because you play a Horde army does not mean that all of your troops are expendable yeah because if you just bleed away especially with orcs like their whole power is in their numbers they like the psychers, for instance draw a lot of power from just the number of orcs around if you're diminishing that constantly and not because you're going to lose people obviously but losing them needlessly without a plan without a follow-through without a reason for it that's kind of what fred's talking about if you're losing three people when you only need to be losing one then you're doing it wrong because then when you have another fight later on against another unit you're short two people that would have been helpful exactly exactly so economy of force sun tzu talked about it machiavelli talked about it fred talked about it i'm fairly sure vegetius is going to talk about it. we were
0: going to talk about this on some level in
1: every single book because it is an important concept And, and it's also important when you're doing your individual fighting because as a person as an individual fighter if you go out and just go super hard like just complete like burn out all the energy you have within the first hour of fighting what good are you going to be hour seven?
0: Uh, I mean, in that one, we just call it economy of motion. If I don't need to move more now, then I get to move more later. If I don't have to move more to land that shot, that's less
1: chances for you to block, to change. The to counter, to yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, so economy of force is just, it's an important concept. We're going to keep drilling it because it's an important concept. The next thing Frederick talks about, and this particular point is going to come up in our battle rather heavily today hmm. is being informed of everything. You need to know what is happening in your army. So if you are, uh, a, an orc player, so if we're talking about 40 K and I'm an orc player, I want to know everything. I want to be informed of every new release that's coming out for the orcs, all the new rule changes, how the other things relate to it. Any of the, any of the, uh, supplemental stuff, like the psychic awakening, you want to be up on that because you need to know everything about your army in order to use it effectively. Now let's bring it down to the physical world gaming level. You've got a team. You're a general or a unit leader or whatever, and you've got your team. You wanna know everything that's going on in your camp. You wanna make sure your camp is safe. You wanna make sure everybody's squared away. You wanna know everything that's going on in the field. Are people injured? Are people well-fed? Are they well-rested? Are they doing their jobs? Are they wanting to be a part of your unit? Like knowing these things is important, but you as an individual can only do so much. There's only so many hours in the day. And this is where your lieutenants come in handy. Oh, yeah. Making sure that you have solid people you can rely on to bring you the good information that you need. Uh, And even on, like, running
0: a field level, this is having other Heralds that are there to back you up or Mm -hmm. do whatever you need to make sure you have enough people for weapon check. uh, To know, as best you can, what big surprises the different units are going to have. We had a Chaos Wars one year that I was helping Herald at, and I was not in charge for this one. But, uh... It was chaotic of uh, there was, you know, half the units were on this side and half the units were on this side. But that's through some negotiations. The biggest unit unit from side A swapped to side B. Mm. And suddenly it was like a quarter of the field against three quarters of the field. And even beyond just the on field. Oh, my God. I wish we had known this. Or, oh God. or All of the heralds or marshals or whatever term you want to use we're kind of losing their stuff at the same time because suddenly we had a completely different field that we had to look after and the information changed all yep. the information changed and everything we had to do changed immediately
1: and also being informed of everything means knowing what's going on in the kitchen like i said with with being and like, uh, uh, informed about if your people are well-fed that also comes with no one making sure that your, your kitchen is well-staffed and making sure that they have what they need and the dishes are cleaned and the dishes are cleaned. Also very important Stay thing apart. about staying healthy and making sure that it's useful. So, so again, be, and, and again, especially as a, a tournament coordinator or an event coordinator, this is especially important. You need to know what's going on at every level, because even if it's not your fault, it's your fault. Yeah. If you're if running
0: wrong. the event or something, you will be blamed for it. For years.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, that, that it, it's one of those things that'll be with your reputation. Yeah. And, and again, I've I've known people whose reputations were somewhat tarnished because something else went wrong. Somebody in their command structure did something wrong. They were not informed of it, and then later on they were held responsible for it. And because they're the leader, it's their job. The buck stops here. So because you know that you're gonna be blamed for everything, you might as well be informed about everything. The next point here is kind of the opposite. So when we're talking about disassembling or dissembling and, um, (laughs) disassembling your emotions, dissembling yourself and appearing tranquil. And again, this is, this is a matter of like appearing confident and, and making sure your enemy doesn't know you're frazzled. But on the other side, you want to make sure that you're friendly to your soldiers Uh, You you want to make sure that they like you. The best generals in history do tours regularly around wherever encampment their troops are at and just say, hey, how are you? What's going on? Like, I know I'm the guy at the very top, but I thought I'd come and eat dinner with you guys if that's okay. Look at MacArthur. Yeah. (laughs) All the time. He was wildly popular with his soldiers for that sort of thing. Um, a lot of the civil war generals who were more popular did the same thing. They were, they were, they were men of the people. And this is something you want to do. If you want to be an effective soldier, don't maintain yourself at an arms distance from your people. If you have members of your team, like newbies or whatever, you you want to make sure that they feel included. You want to make sure they feel listened to that they're a part of the army because they're going to stick around at that point. You want to ask after their well-being because a soldier that I have, like I've said, is well-rested, well-fed and well-equipped is going to be a far more effective fighting force. Um, and then the other part of this is praising good action. If you're seeing people doing the right thing, make sure that everybody knows about it. Call that person out and be like, so-and-so did the right thing because that encourages the thing in the future.
0: When I was still a realm leader, there was a couple things I did along these lines, uh, to keep it going. One was if we had a good clean day everyone is enjoying themselves i'm i would point that out after practice you know go on the facebook hey good job guys the field was really clean the attitude was great and everyone was just like yeah it was and it built up a nice thing and then you also just keep an eye on people who are working people who are doing things and not necessarily your leaders Mm -hmm. but you know uh Yui or Grizz or Orn or Kaji, I've done it for, or you know, someone whose attitude wasn't good but has become good, mm-hmm. or someone who is always there to herald, who is always there to help clean up afterwards. Right, right. And you know, I'd be like, hey, everybody, let's pay attention to how good of an attitude Red has had lately and how hard he's been working to be a better fighter. Hmm. We see you, we notice you everyone raise your glass. And for whatever reason, people took the raise your glass picture really seriously. And we were getting selfies of people like yeah, I know. toasting I, them. I, 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 loved it. I
1: loved it. <laughs> um, now this, and this is amazing because like you say, it encourages more people to do that. It, 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 it highlights the action. So that individual is going to do it more often. And other people see that and they go, Oh, I can get praised for doing that sort of thing. They, they wanted the glass raised for right. them. Like literally yeah. people, I watched people compete for this.
0: And then I watched people be like, what I'm doing good, and they were just on cloud nine for the next like three
1: practices. Mm-hmm. Scientifically, humans do better if they receive praise. Human, human, like it just it, 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 when they've done studies comparing, uh, like that really hard criticism style versus like a praise. Where, like, and you can. St- we're not talking about like never saying what somebody's doing wrong. We're never talking about like constructive criticism is still a thing. But do a compliment sandwich, positive reinforcement. Yeah scientifically speaking it is more effective at managing people and so it like especially when you're dealing with a very stressful situation even on a fake battlefield make sure that these people are feeling good about you remember talking about endearing your soldiers if you're praising them for their good actions they're like man general's all right I, you know I, I could serve him he's all right when i was in
0: high school i had someone ask me to review their portfolio for them hmm. And I took it really seriously and I took serious notes and I had like sticky notes that I put next to the things being like, this needs work. And I, I tried to be very clinical about it because mm. uh, that's what they asked for. And that's what they thought they wanted. And also tried I out. was probably kind of mean because I was 16. And you we're know? all mean at 16. <laughs> um, and I, I tried to take it real seriously of like, this needs work. This part's wrong. And I did not say enough nice stuff. And I literally ruined my friendship with that person. Uh, I didn't mean to. Right. But so, you know, uh, I got asked for an art critique this morning. And I went, oh, this is really good. Yeah. I really like this. But the waist looks wrong. And they went, oh, you're right. And it turned out way better. And they, they were affectionate. Mm -hmm. About the fact that I critique them on that as opposed to me, if I had just been like, that's wrong.
1: Right. Well, again, like this management style that I've, that I've heard about and experienced is this idea of the compliment sandwich where you say that something they're doing well, and then you, you give the critique, the -hmm. the positive uh, or the, the constructive criticism, and then you point out something else that they're doing well or, or a way that they, that you know that they can reach this point. Because the idea is about bringing them up. Leading is not about agitating your people. Leading is not about being the meanest guy in the room. Leading is about making your people better.
0: Also a tip here. If you make that mistake, if you're a little harsher than you intended, because it's so easy to do with any kind of criticism, um, point out when you have done the same thing, Mm. because if you are able to critique a mistake, that means you have probably made that mistake yourself. Uh, and, and again, an art one, cause someone they're like, what do you think of this? And I'm like, well, that looks like not what you're trying to make it do. <laughs> it, it kind of <laughs> looks like a different body part that I don't think is what you were intending there, but it's okay. Look at this picture I did. It's even worse on that front. Right. Right. Uh, and it turned from like kind of mean without meaning to be mean to, Yep, that looks like that all right. Mm-hmm.
1: That's <laughs> mm-hmm. So it, so humbling yourself, like mm-hmm. you say, is a good thing too. It relates to them. Frederick also recommends to do to grant small requests. So if you're if your soldiers are like, "Hey, we'd like to uh, I don't know. Um get sleep in, in a, an extra hour. Sleep in an extra hour. If you if it's not absolutely critical, especially in something like Belgarth. If everybody's like, "Guys, we we worked really hard today and we want to get up a little bit later tomorrow." That's a small request. Mm -hmm. That's that's a small thing to grant people a little bit of extra sleep. Let them have it. And it's something that will endear them to you. You don't have to be, pardon my phrasing, a hard ass (laughs) in order to get respect. You don't, you don't have to, to be mean and, and really, 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 um, demanding of people in order to get them to do the right thing. Um, you have to be. There's there's times for it. The Frederick even even says there there are times when you have to punish. You know, deserters. If you've got spies. If you've got people who are falling asleep on guard duty or something like that. You know, there are things that need to be punished. That's bad. But That's... if people are doing the right thing, be good to them. Yeah, yeah. It's not hard. No, no. And and on the same idea, Frederick says to encourage intelligent offers officers to express their sentiments candidly. Make sure that the people. Who are in your organization, whether it's your realm, your unit, or your small gaming group, or whatever? Make sure you're listening to ideas. I consider myself a pretty smart guy. I consider myself fairly well-read on matters political and military. That being said, I don't know everything. I know I don't know everything. There are people who know more about a particular subject or have a different, a different perspective than I do, that that may be more accurate. And so I'm I'm I'm, I'm hamstringing myself if I don't listen to people who have their opinions.
0: Just in this podcast, when I first started, I was very purposely not learning about the episode's battles at the very beginning, because I thought that it would be better that I could be there to ask questions and do more of a kind of education setup. Sure. But when we tried it the other way, where we both knew stuff, mm-hmm. even though you had researched it more, I'd pop up with, oh, hey, but what about this thing mm-hmm. the, the just little out of the way flavor fact in my case is more things so I wouldn't like,
1: necessarily consider but that really added to the argument or really added to the perspective yeah no I, I I love it and you can only get this by encouraging this if you shut people down if you if you just pull the I'm in charge and my way goes card
0: you're not going to be in charge for very long honestly you're not
1: gonna be in charge for very long uh, you had mentioned at a time that this went wrong for you at a chaos wars
0: I had to run a field a couple of years ago and it went I mean every field goes sideways right anytime you're running banner and there's big games and stuff like that and my game had a really obvious breaking point in retrospect because this was during the period where people were like we'll do three teams Mm. and i thought like okay well the problem with three teams is uh two teams will just beat up on one yep So, I'll set up that the winner of whoever started the day or whoever won the day before starts a disadvantage. Mm. So, if one team keeps winning, it'll hopefully like change it up, balance it out. Yeah, it didn't work because people just had too much. There was too much on one side of like that team's gonna go, we gotta get them just like a blood feud develops. And this is not me giving my players hell. I I did not plan for this, and I was so worried about being hesitant that I became very hard line in the sand, and when people would try to talk to me about problems, I wasn't always the best at being receptive, partly because I knew that everything was going wrong and my brain was overloading, being like, oh my god, too much information, and there is points. When people are talking to you in the middle of a battle, you have to be like, okay, you need to go
1: right there's but, a time and place absolutely like in the middle of the battle is not necessarily the time to change the plan
0: but the next you know after the battles while talking about stuff for the next day i needed to be better about whoops that that didn't work let's talk about what you think would fix it because it turns out that if you talk with people on that they tend to be very even mm-hmm. they don't necessarily want an overwhelming advantage they just want a shot
1: right they just want to be, have it be a fair field
0: but I was, and this is also, I had just been knighted. This was the first time that I had authorita. Not even that. This is the first time I was running a field. It wasn't even so much I have authority. It's, oh my God, I have responsibility. Sure, sure, that duty and, thing. And a national level responsibility as opposed to like, oh, I'm doing something at my realm. That I was very comfortable with that by sure, that point. sure. So I was trying to prove I could fit the big boy boots. And I showed how big the big boy boots were still on me. And I learned a lot. Sure. I felt real bad about that event for a couple of years, honestly. And I still do because I have guilt complex of a Catholic, but, <laughs> um, uh, I have largely gotten over it and I have learned so many lessons and I can teach other people the lessons on it. And I'm just like, okay, don't do what I did. Right. And that, that's when, like when I was able to pass that on, it was a lot easier. So.
1: And, and again, thumbs illustrates this really good point. If you've got people who are trying to talk to you, who are, who know what they're doing. again, there are, Yeah, you know, I, I often hear this, the whole thing, that's there's no, no stupid ideas. There are, there absolutely ideas. are, but you know, a lot of people, their ideas can be tempered. Even if the the raw idea that comes to you isn't necessarily tenable, it might give you the perspective to adjust your own idea to make it more workable. Mm-hmm. So again, and, and, and humans are supposed to be a collective species. We're supposed to work together. And so uh, this is a really good, especially somebody like Frederick. I like the fact that even Frederick, as brilliant as he was and as self-centered as he was, even he says, you got to listen to your officers. You got to listen to your guys who know what they're talking about. Because if you don't, you're doing so at your own peril. I mean, we can even take this
0: to his wife. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Who we've talked about it before, and I look for any excuse to talk about her because, as we've said, she's amazing. Oh, yeah, Elizabeth Christine. He amazing. knew his weaknesses, and it was everything Elizabeth Christine was good at. So he encouraged her to play with that area, to to run the court, to make sure that all the
1: diplomatic stuff was done. For him, and she he trusted her to do it, yeah, and listened to her uh when when she was able to provide some feedback on on maybe what he was doing wrong, so it's it's important it's very important to make sure that you're you're listening to people. that's the reason you have them you know, so on the same idea of of listening to people and formulating this plan, you want to do the hard work beforehand. The hard work is the mental work, you want to make sure that you have not only thought out your plan but you've thought out three or four contingencies to said plan and you you know exactly every single level of that plan this is frederick level thinking right but that's not enough just having a plan isn't enough to win the battle or isn't enough to carry the day because you have to have the industry to see it through i'll give you an example this podcast starts off as a plan at the beginning of the week we talk about what section of or at the beginning of the whatever the week or the two week cycle that we're on we talk about what uh, section of the book we're going to be studying and then we plan to do a podcast about it in about a week. That plan is all good and 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 fine, but there's a lot of work that goes into it too. We have to have the industry to then say, read said book. You yeah. have to have the industry for Like in my case, for instance, when I'm doing this podcast, I read the book the first time, just one pass through. Then I read it again while taking my, my notes. And these are just like freehand notes, little, like the quotes or the ideas that I like. They're not necessarily organized. It's just the things that I liked in the chapter that I want to talk about. And then I might go through the book again, but at this point I'm going through my notes and I'm organizing them and I'm formulating where they're going to be at in my argument, in my story that I'm telling, while also kind of looking at what they relate to in the book, making sure I've got the spirit of what Frederick was trying to say, right. And then at that point we finalize the notes. So that's a lot of work. That's several days. You no, know, it's, a, it's a week worth of work that if I don't have the industry to do, and if Thumbs doesn't have the industry to do, this podcast doesn't happen. Yeah. And my side tends to be a lot easier because you
0: tend to form the the framework of the episode. But still, if I'm not reading the book, if I'm not sitting thinking about it, if I'm not remembering good stories from Bellegarth Mm -hmm. or places that I made mistakes, I am not going to give as good of a performance. I'm not going to give as good of a show. And it's all of us have to
1: do the full effort. We have a role. We all have roles to play. It's it, it, you know, thumbs has a different role with this show than I have. Uh, a lieutenant has a different role on a battlefield than a general has. Neither of them are more important or less important than the other one when you really look at it. Everybody has to singer. <laughs> Everybody has to fulfill the role in order for the army to function correctly. It was one of the things I recognized when I was in the army itself. You're a part of one big machine. Every single job contributes to the overall war effort. It doesn't matter if you're a paper pusher or an, you, know, you look at photographs and read books like I did as an intelligence guy, or, or if you're on the front lines fighting, everybody is serving a role. I would, I would like you to find one person in the army. It doesn't think that the cook isn't probably the most important person <laughs> in the unit. Doesn't do any fighting, but everybody loves cookie. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, so these role and this mental work comes from everybody. Again, the mental work done by a general beforehand is going to be different than the mental work done by a lieutenant It's going to be different than a sergeant. I'm using these different ranking structures, but the idea is do the hard work before. Make your plan, make your contingencies, but then also have the industry to make sure that that happens. Yeah. Check up on your lieutenants, make sure they're following through. Um, And that's the way the things get done. And as much as we warned about
0: having lieutenants so you don't burn out, check up on your lieutenants so they don't burn out. That's a
1: weak part in the chain. You want to be aware of that, be informed of everything, right? Middle management is rough. It is. It is. Um, So, on this last idea of these plans, skepticism is the mother of security and overconfidence is the mother of defeat. So you want to be constantly looking at what you have. So if I, if, we, if I've got this plan, right. And I'm like, okay, I've got this plan for, to meet the enemy. I also want to keep checking to make sure that the conditions in which that plan was set still exist. If I've got a plan to hit my enemy's line here, I want to make sure that that line is still where it was and that the flanking elements still where they were when I made that plan. Because if those things have shifted, if the, uh, Battlefield has changed significantly. The plan needs to change, too. The exact
0: Persian that I was making fun of earlier, whose name we cannot remember, uh, had all set up. He had lost his previous battle with Alexander. He was pretty sure he was going to have it right, and... Uh, he was real set for what Alexander was doing, but Alexander changed up the plan and he shifted some soldiers, some cavalry to the left and he went, Oh no, we can't have that. And sent some of his cavalry to the left. So Alexander sent just a few more of his cavalry to the left. And this just went back on until there's like this little mini cavalry battle going on the side until it got to the point that Alexander's like, okay, wait for like three more horses. Okay, go.
1: There's uh, and we've got this, the point he was like, and Mm -hmm. so like what Thumbs is saying here, exactly. Um, if, because this other commander wasn't being skeptical of the situation because he was just taking it as a dry read and saying, okay, this is how I react because Alexander and not being skeptical of the plan, he got played. Yeah. He got played. And this overconfidence thing is also how you get played. If you go into a battle and you think I am going to win this, you will perform less than a person who is desperate straight up
0: oh you won't try as hard I, I got this it's fine whatever
1: and i i have personally suffered some pretty humiliating defeats against opponents that i quote unquote should have won against because the hardest fights
0: for me is the ones that i think i should be winning that i know my talent level enough to know i should be able to beat these people i'm not even necessarily wrong i mean a lot of times i'm wrong that's why i have tried to get rid of that viewpoint anyways
1: but if they're able to play to that pride
0: and if i'm so in like because if i make a mistake at that point Suddenly, it's such a bigger deal. Oh man, I should have made the mistake. I should be winning this fight, right. and then you have to get past that to do another thing, and you have like four extra levels of
1: you playing head games on yourself, mental idiocy, yeah. to win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, don't be overconfident. Make sure that you are skeptical of all of your plans and all of your abilities. If you if you think that your sword style is set and you never practice the basics, I guarantee you you've gotten rusty in some way. Oh yeah. Oh, I feel so rusty right. That's not the same thing, but <laughs> the moment you said rusty, my body just
0: cried. And I, and I
1: know I keep telling y'all that I'm going to get this 12 shot video out to you. And it's been delayed at this point because for a good reason, it's a good reason I'm going to do it with a lightsaber because it shows up better. That's be so cool. And I think I said that on the last show, but I'm saying it again. I haven't forgotten about it. It's coming, but my lightsaber is also coming. So when it gets here, you're going to have a video, I guarantee you. So, um, so these are the talents of a general. The, basically the idea is that you want to maintain a poker face while constantly examining the situation, constantly trying to find the way to, to achieve an advantage. You want to be informed of everything and preserve the lives of your soldiers so that you have the economy of force so that you can really devel- de- deliver the knockout punch when you need to. You want to be good with your soldiers. You want to encourage them, encourage their good ideas and relate to them in a way that makes you endearing to them, Mm -hmm. that makes you want to be followed. And finally, you want to make sure you do the hard work beforehand and then examine it, examine it, examine it again. Because as we've said before, every plan fails when it first meets the enemy. And those are the talents of a general. It's very important. It's very important. And in the next section, we're going to be talking about how such a general uses ruses and stratagems to win the day. A general should never be predictable, which is why this section on ruses and stratagems is so important. Because when you come into something, you want to make sure that your opponent doesn't know what you're going to do. And this first section, in the book, it's called Need to Know. The U.S. military refers to this concept as operational security. I'm going to tell you a story. I've been watching through the Clone Wars for the first time, and I, I finally got over the the, the animation <laughs> style. Um, and one of the things I noticed in the Clone Wars is at the beginning of any of the large conflicts, the Jedi get together, and they hold just a big powwow. And they invite, you know, all of the line troopers that are walking by and, you know, any clone trooper that might be in the room. And, you know, know, Senator Palpatine is in on the call too. And, oh, here's some other senators and stuff. And they're all just talking about the every single aspect of the plan. And then at one point, you know, Yoda's sitting there and he's like, oh, he's ahead of us. The enemy appears to be. Why, that's a terrible Yoda impression. Actually, that was pretty good. And I'm sitting there being like, well, no, duh. You're, (laughs) You're telling everybody, including your aunt, about what the plan is that's 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 the exact opposite of course palpatine knows he's right there in the room and and once they realize that of course the enemy seems to have this foresight they don't change what they're doing they just continue to have these large meetings and include everybody in the conversation no 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 you have to have operational security this lieutenant who is in charge of this thing that is what they know about you do not tell them what lieutenant b is doing because lieutenant b's job is lieutenant b's job you want lieutenant a to only know what Lieutenant A is supposed to do. And then Lieutenant B is informed about Lieutenant B's job. Not about anybody else's. This does two things. This does two things. One, it doesn't cloud people's head. If too they many have, things to think about. Too many things to think about. Once everything starts going, if you're thinking about what everybody else is doing, when you're in the thick of the fight, you're going to be too distracted. And, and things are going to go awry and you're going to, you're going to step up on your own brain. A, a soldier needs to be focused on their objective. They need to be moving forward, always and, and, and trying to achieve whatever it is, taking that hill, you know? And so if they're concerned about everybody else's hill, they're going to be less effective. So for one thing, this is a matter of, of concentrating that effort into one place. On the other thing, spies are everywhere. And, and our, what we do is no exception. I know most 40k players, their new list builds we play them pretty close to the chest. Oh yeah. We don't know want to know what people uh, for people to know what we have necessarily before we come to the table. I'm going to bring three titans. just do some anti-vigil, okay. more or less cannons. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly. So you don't want your opponent to know what you're bringing obviously on that end, but it's also true in something like Belagarth, Even if people are not like they don't sit there and they're like, "I am a spy." I work for so and so. That that's not the level of spies that usually exist in Bellagarth. What we have are gossips. You have a spying story that you have been telling
0: me for ten years now.
1: This would be a good spot for it. This would be
0: it? a great spot for it.
1: I think I've already told it on the show, but it's been a while, so Sorry I'm gonna time regale with you. My, again. Luck. <laughs> my very first Chaos Wars. I was wandering around one night, and I saw this group of people who were clustered together conspiratorially. And as I approached, I recognized some of the voices as being members of the GELF, as Thumbs is a member of. Not, this is at the far time, before far my before time. His time. And uh, at the time, the GELF were allied with the Urukai, who I was uh, working with. And I overheard the GELF talking about how they were going to betray the Urukai the next bum, day. Bum, yes. And so I hustled on back to camp. And of course, they paid me no mind. I was just a person stumbling around in the dark. Drunk, lanky 20 year old. Why, uh, why pay attention to me? And so I hustle on back to my unit leader, Forkbeard burst into his trailer. And I say, Forkbeard, the Gelf are planning on betraying you. And I revealed everything of what I had heard from the conversation. And the next day where the Gelf were planning on the Urukai, you know, trusting them. And then the Gelf, the the whole plan was that the Gelf were just going to hold back. The rest of the field was going to converge on the Urukai and the Gelf were just not going to support them was the idea. And so, what the Urukai did was just bum rush the Gelf. <laughs> Every single round. round. It was beautiful. <laughs> time round, round time. <laughs> I did not do that right, sorry. <laughs> we didn't choreograph it beforehand, it's fine. Nice uh, <laughs> so, so, this threw a wrench in the Gelf's plans. Obviously, I mean, everything still kind of worked out. The Urukai did not take the banner, which was kind of the point of it. Neither did the Gelf that year. But neither did the Gelf. And part of it was because operational security. The no mind pain to the, the the stumbling person in the dark turned into a major security flaw. And so this, this is kind of what I'm talking about. Like I told Thumbs, I, I could go on about operational security for so long because it is is a very important concept of this need-to-know basis. He can and has many times. To- <laughs> the, the cook should know about the cooking. The soldier should know what hill specifically they need to take. They don't necessarily need to know about each other's jobs. Yeah. You do. You're the general but they just need to know what they need to accomplish. And so this is, again, it's a matter of focusing up your priorities and making sure that the information does not get where it doesn't need to be. And this point will be very well illustrated with our battle. I know I keep teasing at it, but they're like, this is, this is, ooh, this is a fun
0: one.
1: So keeping everything need to know, you're making sure that the right people know the right things and you're not disseminating too much information. The next point is to change your methods to make sure that you're keeping it fresh. You're bringing new ideas to the table or new ideas to the field when you're coming. And this isn't to say that you throw out your grab bag of good plans. For instance, the Gelf. Uh, they are, as we've discussed, fairly support weapon heavy. They've got a lot of big, long weapons, some pikes, some glaives, all that good stuff. They got a lot of archers. They got a long reach. They're very good straight ahead. They got mm-hmm. a very good, like the, as we were discussing with like the phalanx idea, the Gelf are very good at fighting what is directly in front of them and crushing it oh yeah now if the Gelf were to do this every single time if they were to march at their opponent straight on every single time do you think it would work
0: though? no it doesn't i know for a fact that it doesn't <laughs> uh because i've been there
1: yeah actually we talked about this back at the the stygia event that Oh yeah, but this, this has come
0: up about six times it turns out when we haven't been fighting much we're telling the same, the stories, same stories
1: repeatedly <laughs> yeah we'll get you like i said i was excited to have the first game in here because i finally had something something new to talk about um so but so what the Gelf could do instead, because they know that attacking straight on is their strong point. They know that where their weapons are all pointed forward, that, that is where they are strongest. But instead of just marching straight at their target, they could maybe strafe left and then hit them straight on or strafe right and then hit them straight on or maybe pull back and then hit them straight on. Now, oh, they think they're running. There's a lot of different ways that you can combine your favorite tactic or your favorite method with variety. You still end up doing the same thing. For instance, I tell people I throw three shots in Bellagarth. It's just a matter of how you throw them. It's just a matter of the combination. It's a matter of the of the faints I throw beforehand. That's what changes, is, is, where I, is where I'm fainting to because, you know, that if I'm mixing that up, I don't become predictable. But I still only land on the same three parts of the body generally. Yeah, I, I know. It, I can feel the parts of the body while you say those words. Is your kidney <laughs> aching? just a little little
0: bit bit. and uh the back from where you used to do the scorpion wrap all the
1: time i can't do that one no more. i know but it's just built in at this point (laughs) (laughs) the the scorpion so 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 change your methods you want to make sure that you're you're keeping it fresh again don't throw out the things that work but make sure that you're you're doing them in different ways so that you don't become predictable that's what you're trying to avoid here is predictability so the next point that Frederick makes is to feign the contrary of your objectives. And we were kind of talking about this just now with the idea of body feints. So if I'm fighting against thumbs and I want to get this kidney wrap that I'm talking about, that's my bread and butter shot. If everyone does against me. It's the lefties, man. Well, I'm also a lefty. I know, but you fight lefties like you're a left or like. <laughs> I do. I stand weird when I fight lefties because <laughs> I'm like, I'm just going to fight you like a righty because it confuses people. Um, but the idea is, so if I want that kidney. The last thing I need to do is position my body in such a way that it's obvious that I'm going to go for a kidney shot because everybody knows for one thing, everybody knows who's been fighting me for any length of time knows that I like kidney wraps. So for one thing, that's already in their head. So if I'm sitting there and I brace myself in such a way that it's like, I'm about to throw a kidney wrap, what are they going to do? They're,
0: they're going to rep for that kidney wrap. There is a point where I perfected the C shots. Mm-hmm. I could throw it like no one's business. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work in Stygia anymore. Yeah,
1: nope. Even people who weren't there back then, because they have <laughs> learned from the people who were. For sure. For sure. But but in the same thing, I always end up throwing the kidney wrap, but it's after I faint high for the shoulder. Yep. Or I faint to the other side for the leg, or I try to go for a stab and then redirect or something. I, I still end up going for the shot that I want, but I get my opponent out of position beforehand because I'm feigning the contrary to my objectives. Right? One of my other, my other favorite tricks is just to stare somewhere that I don't actually intend on hitting. So if I'm squaring up against thumbs and I want my kidney wrap, I might just, just stare at that shoulder. Just looking I'm at all, hungry for it. Looking salivating-like at it. <laughs> and then, you know, I watch his guard start to creep up to protect that shoulder subconscious-like because he can see Bam! And it only takes, like, a two-inch shift of the guard. Like, mm-hmm. it does not take much.
0: Once that body weight has shifted just a bit too far, mm-hmm.
1: it's over. It's... Yep. You're not recovering. So if you think about this in a larger sense of, like, a, a large field, so a physical wargaming large field, uh to send... So let's say you have some really fast people and you're like, okay, I know you can re- reposition pretty good. I want you to fake like you're hitting the left really hard. Just run at them super hard. And then when they start to square up and, you know, holler to everybody to watch that flank, I want you to pull back and circle around to the other side. You wouldn't believe how well that works. Oh yeah. Cause great. Cause the, the people are still there, especially if you have somebody to center it. Like if there's a few of them that run up and they're airing, hey, 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 keeping that attention. And then you pull a redirect. There have been
0: so many times where I shift, basically looking like I'm going for a hard flank, but I'm not actually trying to start a fight. I am just trying to cause enough attention. Right. Oh, you got to watch Thumbs over there. And I'm like, you really don't. But sure, yes, please watch me. The real action's going on over there, but I am feigning, contrary to our objectives. Apparently, you should pay more attention to me than Turkey, and you're absolutely wrong on that (laughs) front.
1: But, man, uh... Uh... (laughs) Oh... And when you go up to something larger, like intellectual war gaming, it's, it's kind of the same idea. If you send a smaller, maybe quicker unit that can redirect after something that you're not necessarily wanting, it might provoke your opponent into committing more resources there than they need to. And then when you make your real move against your real objective, your opponent has less to, to defend with.
0: Send your biker boys over there and send your... Oh, I forgot what the the, the killican? killa can killa Yep, yeah, that's yeah. A, that's the send thing. your
1: killican can to the big one. That's uh, what you're actually after. And when they're like, oh, wait, oh, yep. And this that actually brings up our next point too, which is the idea of threatening multiple targets. So if if you're looking at a fairly well defended opponent who has a fairly spread out defense on anything, whether we're talking about physical, like one on one wargaming, mm-hmm. or even or an intellectual, one of the best things you can do is then move yourself into position where you can hit several different things. So like put your sword in a way that you could maneuver, uh, toward, toward several different shots or put your unit in a way that you've got a couple of different options to move on the unit or units that you're against, or the same thing on 40 K, make sure that you move up and threaten multiple objectives or multiple soft targets. And what this will do is that your opponent will then consolidate their defenses on what they actually value. And then you hit something else. Like you're like, okay, I'm wanting to hit objective one, two, and three. My opponent has pulled back all of their forces to two and three. So I'm going to go after one because it's available to me now. And you still gain a foothold. It's still an objective that you had, but you're doing less work for it. Oh yeah. Instead of just marching directly at one and being like, oh, I'm going at objective one. And then they can be like, okay, slide people over to objective one. Obviously. Better free can protect for that. Yeah. yeah. They can prepare for it. But if you're threatening three of them and you're like, and then they're like, oh, I don't know, but I really need to preserve these two. It helps out. It can It can clear the field for you. The next tactic is one that Frederick doesn't refer to it this way, but Thumbs and I have taken to referring to it as the Mongolian retreat, <laughs> which is this false retreat of of being like, "Oh no, we're going to run away. We're overwhelmed." Oh, Ambush. look at those scary knights! Oh,
0: right, there's twenty thousand of us with bows. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but this idea of if your opponent is in a strong position, drawing them out of it, feigning this weakness, and being like, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna have a disorderly rout." Very few people can resist pursuing a disorderly route. No, no.
0: It's the way that most armies collapsed if once sort parts are routing. I mentioned this earlier today, even yep. Yep. the Mongolians could fake that like nobody's business.
1: And if it's something like, it's, it's something that like wolf packing it works really well for this. If you can do a Mongolian retreat and, and combine it with a wolf packing technique, gosh, you can just tear apart. You can really gain local superiority in numbers and just tear an army apart. It's It's a lot harder to do this with a dedicated wall because a dedicated wall requires more
0: proper assembly. I'm not saying you can't do it. You're giving me the little nod that they can't see. (laughs) But uh, it does require definitely more prep sure for it
1: no absolutely I, I, but like you say anybody can do this anybody can can kind of feign this idea and it, it actually leads into our next idea of pretending fear if you want your enemy to attack it's the same idea with the mongolian trick. you you seem weak you seem like oh no and you, you can do this again mind games we're talking mind games if i'm doing a game of warhammer and my opponent moves towards something that you know i don't necessarily care about you know there's this unit over here that i sent out as a distraction they're moving towards it. Maybe at that point I might start to look concerned, right? I might be like, oh no, not those dudes. They're vital to my war effort. <laughs> and then my opponent is like, oh yeah, and commits there and maybe bumbles into my ambush or maybe opens up the, 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 the line in a place that I needed elsewhere to get after my actual objective. And this it absolutely works. I, I saw Slag do it. I know we talked about it on this show, but Slag uh, was a guy who used to live here in Stygia. And he perfected this this technique of looking just dog tired, like he'd have his his shield super sagged and his shoulders super sagged. Like I mean, I mean, the dude, I love this technique. He he looked like he hadn't slept in like three days and eaten in about the same. And it's like so it's possible he hadn't. It but, was, yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he'd just spring into action. Suddenly his eyes would light up. His his guard was there. Like right as somebody entered the danger zone, they suddenly realized that it wasn't his danger zone. It was theirs, and like. He'd just be on him. And 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 this was coming from this this feigned thing, this like, oh, oh no. Uh, birds will use it to lead people away for or, or predators away from their nests.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, oh my broken wing, look at me. Oh, how terrible. Um, even on a one-on-one combat thing, I'll use it by leaving my shoulder open on you know, I'm left handed fighting someone that's right handed, so sword is on sword side. And oh no, look, my shield shoulder is just it's showing right there. Oh, it would be so bad if I lost that. And, and then when they it, go it would for the be, cross. It would be bad if I lost that. But, but you're ready for it. So they go they, for the cross, yeah. and all I have to do, because it just, the way things are set up, I just have to shift, like, four degrees. Like, almost nothing. And suddenly, that shot's not landing, and their entire side, and I am moving again. I just can't stop tonight. <laughs> He's just wiggling everywhere. Uh,
1: I, my my enti- Their entire side is just open. It's delicious. That's the word of the night, delicious. Um, so yeah, this this pretending fear, pretending weakness when you're not actually weak, when you're not actually fearful can draw your enemy into a state of overconfidence. And if you recall from the last section, overconfidence, no bueno. No bueno. It's not a place you want to be. On the opposite, we're talking about bluffing, pretending strength if you don't want to fight. Thumbs and I have talked about this before where we'll go out and just like control a side of a line for a few seconds just by standing there just by by having the presence having the confidence of being like I'm or either looking like thumbs's technique is to go up and look bored he'll just go up and be like whatever I got this which will of course make them go oh man he doesn't look concerned I at know all. what I'm
0: doing this is fine it doesn't work if they know me too well
1: but if they don't then it can, it's it's a good bluff or what I do is I'll go over and I'll thrust my head forward what? And I'll have my chest yeah. out and I'll make sure that I'm grinning like a fool. And they're like, man, I don't want to tangle with this crazy dude. Like You're going no the small way.
0: yappy dog route of this. Of yeah. like, Let's do that." I'm, I'm going the
1: pressure, the pressure <laughs> route. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? You Now on the inside, of course, Thumbs and I are both sitting there going, please don't call my bluff. God, there's like six of you. (laughs) I cannot, I can take one, maybe two of you. But if you rush me, you will take me. But again, in this particular case, all we're trying to buy is a few seconds. We're trying to buy uh, a few seconds to a minute for the other people on our team to finish up what they're doing and then come help us. That's that local superiority in numbers concept again. Uh, And this also works in something like 40K. You want to be pretending strength, again, to, to compensate for your weakness. The problem is, what if they call your bluff? You better have some backup. It's called a contingency. Uh, Frederick recommends that you make sure that, again, like we were talking about in the camp section, if you uh, either last chapter or the chapter before, if you've got a camp, you want to make sure that you've got a couple of backup camps that you can move to pretty easily. If you're going to go with this pretend strength thing, if you're going to go and puff out your chest and not have anything to follow through, you better have a fallback plan. Because if you do this thing that Thumbs and I are talking about, you go out and you challenge an entire side and you're standing with your back to the edge of the world. Eventually they're gonna wise up to it's the going fact. To terribly for you. Yeah, and then you' dead. Whereas like normally, what Thumbs and I'll do is we'll we'll go out there, we'll bluff, and then when they call, when they do eventually call it, because they will, they'll eventually be like, wait a minute, one, two, three, four, well, yeah, we got this, guys, let's go. <laughs> um, and and so at that point we leave. We're like, okay, I'm gonna go rejoin the main line. I'm gonna fall back to where everybody else is at, and we we skedaddle out of there because the whole point of it wasn't to engage the side; it was to delay them. And now that that has failed. It is foolhardy to stand there and just die.
0: What I always think of is the animated Aladdin movie. Mm. The The monkey gets the sword. And like, He's got a sword. You idiot. We all have swords.
1: <laughs> and it's like, oh, time to go. Like, but it was just a few seconds, yeah, right? Yeah, just got him the moment that,
0: long enough that
1: uh, Aladdin could escape there. A few seconds. That can be all that you need. And so like what Frederick is saying with his army, if they call his bluff, you know, he puts up forth the very, very good defense. And then night comes and, you know, he axes he out um, to one of these fallback points that he has. But with what we do, we don't necessarily have that option. But again, make sure that if you're bluffing, you have a way to get out of it because otherwise you're just dead at that point. The last point that we want to make and use ruses and stratagems, and I would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about spies. And particularly in this case, I know we've talked a lot about turning your friends into a spy network and all that sort of thing. You can go back and look at using spies by Maki or by uh, uh, Sun Tzu if you want a really detailed workup of this. But what he really touches on here is the idea of double agents. Identifying the enemy's agents and purposefully feeding them misinformation. And so for us, again, not many people in Belegarth employ actual spies as far as I know. Like it's all word of mouth but intentionally I'll hire you if you do just for curiosity. Hmm. We have hmm. to talk. I'll afterwards. hire
0: you anyways, you know that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but uh but the idea is remember gossips. Gossips are 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 double agents if you want to think about it in, in something like Bellagarth or 40K, people who just freely share information with other people. You know these are people that can be used to your advantage too. You know, if your army is coming in really strong, let's say that you guys are going for the title this year, or the banner. You guys really want it. But you don't want people to necessarily take you seriously. Maybe go up to a few of these gossips and be like, "Man, I don't know about our team this year. Like, just we're not fe- We're not just there. We're, we're not there. We're not vibing. Like whatever the case may be." And then that gossip is going to go to every other gossip and say, "Oh, did you hear about Malarkin and Thumbs' team? They're not vibing. They're, They're not terrible doing <laughs> Then everybody who squares up against us is like, "Oh, we got an easy win here. and No reason to bring the pain." And then we done bring brought the pain. There's a reason we're not wrestlers, guys. We're sorry. We're <laughs> not intimidating people. <laughs>
0: Our bluffs are really just based off the fact that we're tall.
1: And armored. And That's armored. That's typically why I'm intimidating is because I'm wearing the armor that you made for me, and it makes me look like some sort of... You wanted to look like a space marine, man. I look I look like a Dark Lord space marine. It's delicious. <laughs> um. And, and so, again, you're, you're relying on that. But this double agents thing, this is a good way to get in people's heads. Or, on the other hand, making up for some sort of weakness. Doing the opposite thing and be like, man, our team is really on this year. We're 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 really. You gotta watch out for us. When really you're like, oh, you're kind of shaky. Like maybe you have a new member or whatever, and it's like they, they, the the vibe is off. But like you don't want everybody else to know that, so you spread the information that you guys are top tier. And so maybe people will wig themselves out, get in their own heads, be like, oh man, Thumbs alarks team are against them. There's no way we're gonna win. Oh, I don't want that. and They've already lost. They've already lost against an inferior team that they didn't know because of misinformation through double agents. So. A lot of this information is going to come back for us. We've talked about these ruses and stratagems, and a lot of this stems, being immune to ruses and stratagems stems from an idea of operational security. You want to make sure that you're changing your methods. And when you're, when you're developing your methods and developing your tactics, you also want to feign the contrary of what you want. Sometimes by threatening multiple targets, sometimes by performing something called a Mongolian retreat. Oftentimes you'll pretend fear when you want your enemy to actually attack you, or you might bluff and pretend strength when you really don't, which in case you need a contingency. But in all cases, double agents help you spread the misinformation that makes your ruses and stratagems even more successful. And all of this information kind of comes together. We're going to bring it all together now in talking about our battle for the day, which was the Bay of Pigs invasion in April of 1961.
0: things i learned about the bay of pigs from a really like bad low budget black and white movie from the 60s yeah which it must have come out like just after the bay of pigs I and mean, it's just called bay of pigs sure uh but they clearly could only afford like 10 people for oh. the entire movie oh no <laughs> so so it's just mostly like three people running through like a derelict airfield and be calling it the bay of pigs dun, dun, um, dun, 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 so it was dun, dun, real dun, dun, fun dun. to actually learn and i i knew more than what that was after figured out what it you know learned some stuff but it was really interesting to realize that this is so much bigger I, I keep because my first introduction was this terrible low budget 10 person movie i automatically associated like small thing this is a thousands person
1: battle that had, we don't like to talk about that had international implications huge international this is height of the cold war stuff yep yep so we're, we're going to dive right in. Uh, and again, some of our listeners, this is one of the first battles we've done. I know we've covered World War II before, and I guess there's a possibility that some somebody's listening to us that's been in World War II, in but which case- Probably not. I salute your service. Um, but this is the first battle we've talked about that it's fairly likely that some of our listeners may have actually been alive for the events that we're talking about. We're going to be covering them from a scholarly historical perspective, what we could ascertain from uh, online articles, uh documentaries and books on the subject. Neither thumbs are I were alive for this particular thing. And so also, we're, gonna, we're not historians. Well, I am. I <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> um but and, and so our perspective is going to be different. And so it, it's not a matter of perspectives are never agreeing or disagreeing, it's just different ideas. So bearing that in mind and understanding that again, this is not something that we directly experienced, we're going to talk about this uh, this Bay of Pigs <clears throat> invasion real quick. So it happened, the time period we're talking about is the 17th through the 20th of April, 1961. The uh, powers at play here were Cuba, under the command of Castro, and USA, which was being led by Kennedy at the time. You also have the uh, Brigade 2506, but we're going to get into that a little bit later
0: and we have the soviet union not directly involved but big enough power players that
1: we can't not mention them they were definitely heavily heavily involved in, in this particular conflict and in in the the surrounding circumstances that that precipitated the conflict too um the numbers were not very large in in terms of the the forces that we have normally been talking about the numbers are actually pretty small on the side of the usa you had about a, a total of 1500 ground forces they consisted of expatriates from Cuba, people who had been pushed out by Castro's revolution who were looking for a little counter-revolution of their own. On the other side, you had Cuba. And Cuba had 25,000 army personnel, so uh, 200,000 militia, and 9,000 armed police who were involved in this particular conflict. So that, that's a total of 234,000 troops. Because again, they were invading this nation with this small group. Now, you might be asking, two hundred to one advantage. (laughs) Like, what was going on here? You like, just in the recent episode, you were talking about the U.S. wanting a ten to one advantage. Why are they backing this play? We're going to go over that a little bit. Like, what led up to this situation? So, in December of 1958, Castro takes over the country in a revolution from Batista. Now, Batista is significant because Batista had previously been in power as well and was very pro-U.S. Uh, was letting U.S. companies operate within Cuba with, with little to no jurisdiction, like uh, oversight. Um, the the mafia, uh, with, like the Cuba was a huge uh, place for the mafia to do their business offshores because of the, the climate that was being fostered, particularly by Batista and his regime. And well, so... And
0: this is like 20 years after... Um prohibition right so rum running was a huge cuba was a huge part of rum running Mm -hmm. they'd already had their feet in before this and also cuba is i mean it's not a
1: small island but it's not big right right when you're next to the united states 90 miles (laughs) off the coast from the united states yeah i mean they 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 have there's long been this power struggle and of course the united the interest of the united states in cuba goes back to when we helped them free themselves from Spanish occupation and then put them under basically U.S. occupation right after that. And so there's been this 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 history, this, and I encourage you to go and look at it. There was actually this really good documentary on Netflix that I checked out um, in preparation, partially in preparation for this, um, that, that I highly recommend. That's on the, like the Cuban revolution and kind of the background of it. And Cuba's one we don't really talk about. We're like, our neighbors are Mexico and Canada and Cuba. Cuba's right there. 90 miles. So Batista is overthrown in this revolution. And and like most revolutions, it didn't have a clear direction when it was first coming out. Remember that you had communist elements in the Cuban revolution, but you also had democratic elements. You also had very conservative elements. You also had fascists. I mean, like a revolution, anytime a revolution occurs, there are a lot of voices who contribute to the actual revolution occurring. After it happens, usually one party seizes power and then kind of solidifies things. Before this revolution occurred, though, Castro wasn't the biggest communist. Like, in, in talks with the U.S. Uh, previous to this, I mean, he, he was bombastic toward the U.S., but he didn't necessarily support the idea of communism. Uh, two other fellows within his, his movement, his brother Raul and Che Guevara, were definite communists. They were big old
0: communists. Oh, yeah.
1: They they talked about it often. They were very, very into uh, the writings of Marx and Mao and, and, the, the way that the Soviet apparatus worked, um, like they, they were about communism. Whereas Castro was more of an opportunist. He was, he was more, he wanted the revolution, no doubt, but I don't think he necessarily had a clear vision of what it was going to be. Now, after the revolution, one of the first things he did, and granted, this is a very communist move, was he nationalized business. He kicked the U S companies out and said, Cuban money is going to be for Cuba. Cuban products are going to be for Cuba. And if you want them, you can buy them at a fair price. Uh, the America did not like this. And there's a whole lot of stuff
0: you can talk about that of there is there's very authoritarian errors of that. But also at the same time,
1: Cuba was being taken a lot of advantage of. Right. Right. And so I, I, I we're not necessarily saying that Castro is good or bad. We're not necessarily saying that the U.S. is good or bad. But there were a lot of circumstances that kind of led into the way things transpired
0: yeah there there, there was no like this man there's no hitler in this story
1: no no uh and, and now uh, it depends on who you talk to i imagine but from our perspective there's no hitler in this story so castro nationalizes the business this does not go over well with the u.s they immediately begin making rumblings about <clears throat> intervention possibly military intervention and so castro makes a smart political move at this point, and he reaches out to the other big dog in the park, the USSR. And with that involvement, of course, comes the KGB involvement and all that sort of thing. And in response, Eisenhower allocates $13 million to the CIA, which at this point is still a a kind of a baby of an organization. Here in our current day and age, the CIA is another one of those cornerstone institutions that's just taken for granted in America. It's only about a decade old here, though. Right. It it was only formed in 1947 in response to efforts from the KGB. It was was actually like a a counter-spy thing to begin with to work against the efforts of the KGB in the world. And so $13 million to the CIA in order to get rid of Castro.
0: And you have to remember, this is also 1950s money. $13 million is a
1: lot of money. It's quite a bit of money. So there was a lot of different tactics they tried. Uh, assassination. Uh, they, they, they tried, of course, doing things from internally. But Castro had started to crack down on political dis- dissidents and had uh, instituted a state media uh, and so the, the information and the message was controlled by Castro and his regime there in Cuba. And so the people heard what he wanted them to hear, which really played in well to, to kind of how this all shook out. So again, we're talking about Eisenhower. You students of history are going to go, well, wait a minute, 1961, I, that's Kennedy, not Eisenhower, right? So this plan is formulated under Eisenhower. Um, and it includes air and naval support. The idea basically is that a small group uh, or a moderately sized uh, army of Cuban expats, people who were pushed out by Castro, would land, establish a beachhead, and then call for international aid. At this point, the United States would be like, oh, gosh, these people are just being repressed by a communist government and come in and intervene. Oh, they need help. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they'd have the sympathy of the international community was the whole idea. This is a common tactic. Yes, it was It was used uh, in Nicaragua, in Colombia, all over Latin America. Um,
0: and we should also say it's not just a common U.S. tactic. I mean, this is a common okay. tactic the throughout Roman, history. The Romans
1: used it, the <laughs> Persians used it, the Chinese used it, the Russians used it. I mean, if you've been a successful empire, you have used this tactic. Um, and so the training commences. Uh, this, this small group, Brigade 2506, remember I said I'd come back to that, is the, the name official name that is given to this group of expats who are planning on, quote-unquote, invading Cuba. The Eisenhower administration doesn't end up acting on this, though. Of course, the international power politics are such that they don't quite have the provocation, aren't quite ready by the time that Eisenhower is out of office. Now, it was assumed at this time that Nixon was a shoe in that he was just, he was going to become the next president. And so they didn't involve... Kennedy in any of these talks normally if there's some sort of action like this going on they're going to involve the other candidate in it and say okay this is just in case this is what you might need to expect at this time again Nixon was such a shoe-in in in their minds that they didn't even bother to tell Kennedy about this plan the fun thing about this for me is
0: TV is what brought it down uh this is not directly related to the Bay of Pigs but it is interesting kind of fun history but uh the reason Kennedy did so well is they did the first televised presidential debate and Kennedy is a handsome, good looking guy who answers things well. And Nixon was Richard Nixon.
1: He was a little sweaty. Uh, and, uh,
0: and looked out, uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: And uh, <laughs> cameras did not favor Nixon in the debate.
0: It cost him the
1: presidency for a decade. And so, in this particular case, again, Kennedy comes into this blind. And he's basically walking into office. Eisenhower is walking out of office and says, "Oh, by the way, here's the invasion plan for Cuba. Have fun." High five on their way. And so Kennedy I, out. <laughs> Kennedy's just sitting there. I'm sure, just like, okay, well, this is fun. Uh, <laughs> so he, his heart wasn't in it, though. Like his his whole point, like a lot of Kennedy's thing for all of his bluster and all of his bombastic uh, speeches that he would occasionally give. Kennedy seemed to be motivated toward international cooperation. Kennedy seemed to be motivated toward solving things. Uh, peacefully, and so to just have this war plan be there and and basically already be in motion—that's uh, not yours. That wasn't. That wasn't. That he didn't run on that or anything. It's just. And I'm assuming well, that kind of caught him off guard.
0: Kennedy had served in war, and he was also, I think, young enough that he, he grew up a lot more than a lot of other people did in the era of, oh no, we could end the world. Oh sure, yeah. With this, yeah. And he was yeah. the one that kind of. Got to develop the playbook for
1: how that works? Yeah, there was none up until this point. Like, yeah. <laughs> you got to see how badly that went, but you know. So some things went wrong here. Obviously, we don't own Cuba. The United States, it, it does not own Cuba at this point. Uh, Cuba is still very much under its own autonomy and still very much under the rule of Raul Castro. So, of course, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, how did this go awry? You have a couple of issues here. The first and the biggest one is that the Cubans knew the attack was coming. We weren't
0: quiet about
1: it at all. <laughs> <laughs> and there are several reasons they knew this. The first thing is the Cubans have and have always had a very good intelligence network. Uh, I mean, they just, they, they, they the Castro and his apparatus just run a very top-notch intelligence apparatus. And so they just know kind of things that are going on. They got people everywhere
0: cuba has always understood that they're too small around the big countries around them that they can't have a big army that they can hold off but if they know enough stuff they can kind of make them stay
1: away and they can mitigate they can mitigate some of those factors so having again this is a very good idea having a good intelligence force especially when you're like i can go tell the big daddy soviet union over there the stuff you want to know that makes it way easier for your information to be dangerous right Right. But in this particular case, it doesn't seem like they needed this extensive intelligence apparatus because uh, there was a lot of loose talk by members of the CIA, by members of Brigade 2506. And the this, this information about this was printed in the newspapers. Newspapers. Yeah. Early
0: parts of this, I was like, man, this is why you maybe don't want your intelligence people to be designing your battle.
1: It's also what we're talking about in operational security
0: because they you know I was like I'm oh, practical stuff and they're like and then it was in the newspapers I'm like okay so that's not the CIA's fault <laughs> that's just, just
1: that's loose talk that's that's people uh, uh, who aren't supposed to be speaking who are speaking because they have too much information uh, brigade 2506 was not originally supposed to be told that they were being financed by Uncle Sam and eventually that that veneer the was dropped and it shouldn't have been honestly like it, it, like the whole idea of 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 not having the US involved they didn't go into it. Like they, they really didn't commit to it is what it appears here. Um, the other huge thing here is that the CIA didn't tell Kennedy that the Cubans (laughs) knew (laughs) that this was coming. So you have a whole lot of, you got, you got this issue of operational security, right? You got this issue of not being informed of everything that's going on. And then everything starts to kick off. There's, there's a, there, even with the foreknowledge, there was successful saboteur work that was done in the weeks prior to the Bay of Pigs invasion. And there were some airfields that were hit by some bombers that were kind of lent by the CIA. They were trying to be uh, subtle and all that sort of thing. And the beachhead was eventually kind of established. But the problem here was uh, they didn't commit to it. it. was one of the big issues. Uh, the plan either required one of two things. It either required twice the number of forces that they put in there. Or it required heavy air and naval support. They, requi- they received neither of these things. No. Uh, they they got, got th- some naval support. Right? 1,500 people just dumped on an island and expected to fight an army. The other thing is that the training that these soldiers received was primarily orientated toward the ideas of saboteur work, infiltration, working once you were inside the country, not necessarily as a large military unit, but as a partisan force, as a guerrilla faction. Right, Which
0: is great when you have all those
1: other things keeping the military busy but when 25,000 soldiers from the army are able to descend upon your position in an area where Castro also operated this is this is the thing that kind of blows my mind is that this is one of the areas that Castro hit out in when he was doing his revolution against Batista and so like he knows all the tricks of this area he oh, yeah. he's, he's fully well versed in the in how to get around in eastern Cuba like it's his it, this is this is bread and butter to him
0: i mean and when you're talking to someone that used to be a guerrilla leader he, it, this is down to like oh, watch out, that tree's going to fall over soon.
1: It's rotten on the side. Right. Like it's,
0: This is a level of battlefield awareness that you can't ask for better.
1: And so, like, it, originally when the battle kicks off, Fernandez was in charge. But Castro comes and personally takes command of the operations here. And normally, we would we would argue against this. Normally, I would argue against a politician getting directly involved in military matters. <laughs> um, All of Rome! <laughs> because it complicates things. Again, like if if Hitler had just listened to Guderian the eastern front would have and again i'm not saying that, that we're really a lucky thing. this didn't happen right 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 but uh but Hitler getting directly involved was the doom of the plan on the eastern front Castro getting involved was a completely different thing because Castro was not only a proven battlefield commander not only a national war hero but he was a a, a practiced partisan like he he had been a guerrilla fighter for a long time like that was that was a way of life i wonder if he even slept on the floor in the presidential mansion because he couldn't stand the bed probably at uh, first at least Yeah, that, that's how involved he was and so for him to get involved in this way was not necessarily a negative because he was a guy with really good experience in this particular matter so he gets involved he brings all the forces to bear and kennedy does not deliver on the air support that would have been required at this point and it also at this point because the US had been so loose-lipped about the plan the international community was wise to it so there was no sympathy for a US intervention they were like guys we see what you're doing it's not cool maybe, maybe don't invade off. sovereign
0: nations yeah. yeah
1: so what this did though was it shifted a huge amount of political power to the USSR is so much so that we had the cuban missile crisis arise from this from from nuclear weapons being planted in cuba right near 90 miles off of florida um, which was one of the most scary moments in history in terms of world endingness.
0: Well, and if Castro was uncertain about us before, he actively hated us after this because we tried to take him out. We proved it.
1: Uh, not only did we try to assassinate him, but we tried to invade his nation. and also another like b- before this, remember I had mentioned that the revolution had been made up of a lot of dis, dis-, uh, dis- uh, disparate disparate thank you units, different factions who didn't necessarily agree and a lot of whom weren't necessarily on board with the whole communism thing, weren't necessarily on board with Castro as a leader. There might have been a grassroots revolution that arose naturally that took him out. Not after this. Not after this. Not after he was able to prove himself the defender of Cuba and able to use the state media to spin it uh as, as great propaganda this cemented his rule well
0: yeah. and also just now it cemented that there was this direct enemy and here's proof they invaded yep. 90 miles away yep that is less than the distance between missoula and butte
1: that's which does signs. not
0: mean much to most of you people right. but like <laughs> uh and it made castro hate us as i already said but hate us so bad that he not only was like sure you can put some nukes on my island the soviets i think you should fire them
1: Yeah. And we're all very glad that Kennedy and Khrushchev decided not to to play that day. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So again, within this Bay of Pigs operation, you can see a number of things that went wrong for America that went very right for Cuba. Um, You you had this issue of they didn't have the operational security and Cuba was able to get forewarning and have a really good plan as to what they were going to do when this force hit and how they were going to manage it. Um, you had the issue that Kennedy and the uh, other American member leaders were not very well informed of what was going on and couldn't make very good decisions because of that. Um, yeah, yeah, it it, it was, it was kind of a cluster. It was just a cluster. That was the (laughs) word I was going to pick. That's exactly it. So, uh, you know, today we've, we've kind of gone over what the talents were looking for in a general, some ruses and stratagems. And then we talked about the Bay of Pigs. I think it's been a, a pretty full conversation. It's been it? a hectic conversation here. I don't know why I chose hectic there, but it, it kind of has. No, yeah, that could work. Um, but if if you're still looking for more shows to listen to, if this hasn't whetted your whistle, you can always go over to the Ear Verm Network and, and check out some of our sister productions.
0: Yeah, you can check us out on the website. It's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can listen to me talk about nerdy things. There's a podcast about horror shows, movies, whatever. There's other podcasts coming on the way. You can also check out this show's website at t a o wargaming.com. That's tauwargaming.com.
1: If you haven't had uh, enough of your dose of, uh, of Tau to, uh, for the, for the week, we also have a Facebook and Instagram where I post memes, uh, kind of related to what we were talking about and also player profiles, people from the wargaming community who, uh, I think are pretty cool and I want to talk about. So, um, yeah, you can find us on, fa- that's uh, the art of war gaming. You can email me directly. If you've got questions, comments, concerns, want to start up a conversation. Uh, Art of Wargaming Podcast at gmail.com. Um yeah, I, but the, uh, the most
0: useful thing you can do is you can subscribe, you yeah. can rate, you can review. I mean, honestly, reviews not beyond just putting us out more into algorithm out more in the internet. It helps us when we hear from you. We know what you want better for your show.
1: For sure. For our show. For sure. Uh, but I think for this week, this has been Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. Signing off.